This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Next week, the Southern Baptist Convention will convene its annual meeting, and an incredible 16,000 messengers already have pre-registered to be there in Nashville. There are a lot of issues on tap, but one of the big reasons that this year's annual meeting is sure to be under the spotlight is due to the resignation of Russell Moore as head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and his recent scathing attacks on fellow Southern Baptists in that leaked email and leaked letter released right as he headed off for Christianity Today. It was a shocking and, in my opinion, classless way to depart. And as my next guest points out, Moore's attacks could end up influencing the election of the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But a lot of Christians are now wondering, could Moore's PR strategy actually backfire and lead to the election of a true conservative who wants to bring the convention back to a full embrace of biblical truth and Christian unity? One of the conservative candidates for president and one of the people Russell Moore actually named in those leaked writings is my next guest, Mike Stone. Mike is pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, immediate past chairman of the executive committee of the SBC, and he was chair of the executive committee's ERLC study task force. Mike's also a member of the National Steering Council of the Conservative Baptist Network. And we're going to talk about all of these things today, some of the public responses he had to Moore's attacks and also the vision God has given him for the future of the SBC, including a proposed resolution on the incompatibility of critical race theory and intersectionality with the Baptist faith and message. A lot to talk about. Mike, it's so great to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Janet, it is a privilege to be with you. I'm honored by the opportunity to connect with you and all of your listeners. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. What a week. I'm sure you didn't anticipate going into the SBC convention with Russell Moore's attacks on the front page against you. What What is your reaction? To, I mean, to the content, I know you've put out a statement and a video, but what, what's your general response to the content and also the timing of these attacks? Well, the content of it, it is largely just out of uh, wholesale cloth. I mean, it's just fabricated. And what is uh, there that has a measure of truth is distorted to suit his own political purposes. Uh, in your intro, you referenced it, and I think we would most Southern Baptists would be in agreement. This was not a leaked letter. Yep. This was a carefully crafted, intentionally used backdoor press release. Uh, the second one in particular that was supposedly a private correspondence to sitting president, Dr. J.D. Greer, goes to great length to identify and gives a little bio of a, a mutually known person. Yes. This is clearly not the kind of correspondence that one person is sending to another uh, to be private. It was an, an intentional hit piece against me, and it is a desire to influence the outcome of the SBC presidential election. No doubt about that in my mind at all. Well, I think it's really sleazy. How much do you think Russell Moore's outburst was linked to his anger over that task force that you headed up about the ERLC and its effect on CP giving? I think it's really even broader than that, Janet. I think it is a desire to cover up uh, several years, seven, eight years of divisive and failed leadership of the ERLC. 
That is, if he, as he's going out and he has a failed record as president of the ERLC, he's got to blame it on someone. He can't blame it on the fact that he's been out of touch, arrogantly out of touch with rank-and-file Southern Baptists, known all across the Southern Baptist Convention as refusing to even return emails and return phone calls, and uh, has been one of the most divisive figures in the recent history of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has to blame it on someone, and I guess he has chosen to blame it on me. Well, it's a real shame. I thought that it was really, like I said before, sleazy for him to do it, but I'm not really surprised that he would do it. When you are looking at how this might impact the election of a new president next week, what what do you think might come of all of this? Because people are really worked up. If you go on social media and you look at all the articles of Russell's friends in the liberal media, they're all calling him this great hero. But how do you think this might actually affect the election? Well, again, I think Southern Baptists see it for what it is. The reality is it has generated a lot of turnout from all across the spectrum in Southern Baptist life. So at the end of the day, I don't know exactly what the end result will be. I will tell you that from the very beginning of my candidacy, I've trusted and rested in the sovereignty of God. And even last week, not getting angry about it, but just trusting in the Lord that if the Lord uh, chooses to use this for some sanctifying purpose in my life or the lives of others, I'll trust in God's providence. But I do think that that's Russell's attempt, is to uh, torpedo my potential to serve as president of the SBC. I personally think, if I were making a guess, what I'm hearing is that it's going to backfire. Mm. Because, again, Baptists are not stupid people. They see through this like the cheap, thin sheet that it is. It is a a desire to keep deeply entrenched, long-term politicians and uh, power brokers in the SBC entrenched in their places of power, And I think that rank-and-file Southern Baptist messengers see through that. Well, I really hope and pray that's the case. And there have been people raising questions. Well, one of the people on the docket running against you is Al Muller, who has very big name recognition, obviously, across the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's been around forever. But Al Muller and Russell Moore are quite linked. So what are we to make of that? Well, you know, Dr. Dr. Moeller is in many ways the one that gave Southern Baptist Russell Moore yep. through his promotion uh, and the ascension that he had on the campus at Southern Seminary. And I can tell you for a fact, at times when numerous Southern Baptists were discussing the challenges with Russell and his leadership at the ERLC, his number one cheerleader propping him up behind the scenes, even giving him you know, Alumni of the Year Award, was Al Moeller. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Moeller now... Uh, reports as if he's the statesman that can help bring everyone together. And Janet, the reality is no Southern Baptist would argue with the point that Al Mohler has been one of the most influential figures in the last 25 years of the Southern Baptist Convention, and rightly so. If he has the wherewithal to have addressed these issues and used his influence and uh, stature to rein in some of these issues, then I think a lot of Southern Baptists are legitimately asking, not in anger, but in sincerity, why have you not done so, and why do you think getting one more uh, 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 list on your resume, why is that going to suddenly give you the ability and the courage to, to stand up and deal with these issues? That's a fair question. So going into this election, I know you've been with the Conservative Baptist Network, and there's a whole story there with Al Mohler and you know people who are upset about the establishment of the Conservative Baptist Network. But really, there has been a lot of momentum gained, I think, among conservatives on a number of issues, not the least of which has been that Resolution 9 that was passed on critical race theory. That's one of the things that you're looking to address, aren't you, through this resolution that you've proposed? 
I am. I've actually uh, proposed a resolution you referenced earlier. It's called On the Incompatibility of Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality with the Baptist Faith and Message. I do think that we need to handle these issues with grace and compassion. There is a sensitivity, of course, on the part of many of our non-Anglo brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention. Having said all of that, Southern Baptists, if we're going to be successful, we need to be first and foremost spiritually and biblically successful. And that means we make our decisions, yes, with an understanding of, of sentiment and emotion around an issue, but at the end of the day, we yield to the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And six of our seminary presidents, all six of them, signed a document on November the 30th of last year stating that critical race theory and intersectionality are incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. So the irony is one African-American pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention said this would be the most racist resolution in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. And all we're really doing is agreeing with a unanimous statement that was issued by our six seminary presidents, which I think could generally be understood to be six theologians that we trust their theological acumen on these issues. Uh, I, I was a little bit grieved that it took some of them from the Birmingham Convention until November 30th of 2020 to speak with an awful lot of clarity on this issue, but at least they have done so now. And the resolution that I've been the primary author of seeks to just go on record CRT and intersectionality are incompatible with what we believe as Southern Baptists that the Word of God teaches. Well, I'm really encouraged about it, and I know a lot of other people are as well in the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as a lot of those names and men who have signed on, and women too, I think of Carol Swain and others who have signed on to that resolution that you're proposing. It's going to be very important as part of the discussions next week at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Pastor Mike Stone, candidate for president, is with us. We'll come back to the discussion after this break. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. 
It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Pastor Mike Stone. He is one of the candidates for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. There will be a vote next week when they gather for their annual meeting. And it seems, Mike, that this is a very large crowd that is going to be expected. Is that what you're hearing as well? 16,000 messengers. That's a lot. It is. 16,000 is the pre-registration. And I think with... um a lot of folks that are driving in that day and will register on the spot. I would not be surprised if we top 20,000, which is the largest annual meeting attendance in over 25 years. Wow, that's incredible. Well, and as you said, people are motivated. A lot has happened. There has been a lot of division, obviously, in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last several years. We talked about Resolution 9 and the potential for overturning that and getting back on the right track. One of the other issues that has come up, though, Mike, as you know, is this question of egalitarianism and the idea of female pastors. And people have pointed out, for example, uh, what the Baptist Faith and Message has said and what the Southern Baptist Convention historically has said about the biblical notion that there is no such thing as a female pastor. And yet you have some of these church plants from the North American Mission Board that people have written about saying, oh, they've got women pastors, if they've got husband and wife pastors. What do you do about that issue? Beth Moore famously exited the SBC and talked about preaching in pulpits and things like that. Where do you think that issue is headed and how can you help out? I think that the issue is headed for a statement of clarity by the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I think that we need to have a holistic review of the Baptist faith and message. That is, we, we need a task force or a committee to bring some recommendations to update the entirety of the Baptist faith and message to, uh, to address some specific issues culturally, uh, morally, that were not even in view in 1999 and 2000 when the current iteration was adopted by the convention. And one of the things that I would like to see the Southern Baptist Convention do is to address uh, whether it's just the office that is the title of pastor or the office and function of pastor. Because a lot of things that we see, even in some of our NAM-sponsored church plants and other churches across the convention, is they effectively have a woman serving as pastor or co-pastor, but they just give her a different title. And I believe that that is inconsistent with what the Scriptures teach and what Baptists have historically believed and practiced. So I think we're headed for uh, what may be considered some watershed clarity on that issue. Well, and will that, do you think, lead to further division? Because I'm looking, for example, we were talking about Russell Moore. Russell Moore leaving his post at the ERLC. He's leaving the SBC also. He's going to a church that is not a Southern Baptist church. And it makes you wonder how many on that side of the aisle are committed Southern Baptists when it comes. I don't know. There's a lot of discussion about, yes, we hold to this, we hold to that, we hold to this. But in practical terms, it seems that they don't. And I'm wondering what you think the effects of clarifying some of these issues like egalitarianism uh, will do to the membership of the SBC potentially. Well, it would certainly not be my desire you, uh, for, for churches to leave the Southern Baptist Convention any more than as a pastor. I want members to leave our congregation. At the end of the day, however, clarity of doctrine leads to unity. 
It does not lead to division. It may lead to some controversy or some challenges in the short term. But clarity and precision of doctrine over the long haul leads to unity among that body of believers. And Southern Baptists have the right to determine their own parameters of cooperation. And uh, I think when we, if we see a review of the Baptist faith and message on that point, I think it's going to bring, it will make some people, no doubt, feel like they are no longer a part and cannot fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention. But I do believe that it will provide clarity and unity for uh, for the rest of the convention, which I personally think is the overwhelming majority of the SBC. Yeah. I heard someone recently, uh, Janet, say that in the history of the SBC, the highest number of churches that had uh, female pastors was about one in a thousand. Hmm. So that is not something that Southern Baptists have historically practiced. I would hardly call that a trend, but we do see an increasing trend of uh, churches that have women operating in these capacities and functions But I think clarity is going to bring about long-term unity on the issue. Do you believe that the SBC has become too culturally impacted or culturally affected by some of the trends in secular ideology, uh, a la critical race theory, intersectionality, we discussed that, and and the, the fact that it's incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. But what do you do about the overall problem of, as some Christians see it in the SBC, there's a, a movement within the SBC where whatever is hip and cool in the culture, they want to you know put that into the uh, the at least the culture of the SBC and then say, well, this is biblical, this is gospel unity that we need to have over yeah. these issues. That kind of talk. What, how do you deal with that if you're elected president? Well, the first thing that I have said that I would emphasize is a refocus on evangelism. Uh, Janet, in the last several years, Southern Baptist leadership, at least, has started calling just about every issue on the docket a gospel issue. And the word gospel has become more of an adjective than it is a noun, (laughs) defining a body of truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when everything is a gospel issue, then nothing is a gospel issue. And we're beginning to see the practical results of that across the convention. In 2019, and I'm going back to to 19, just because we understand that COVID-19, the pandemic in 2020, it was brought about a lot of challenges for local congregations. But in 2019, Southern Baptists saw their lowest number of baptisms since 1939. So while I'm not a pragmatist, I will make a very pragmatic statement. What we're doing is not working. While we're calling everything under the sun a gospel issue, we're seeing less and less gospel fruitfulness and gospel impact. And I think the way you reverse that is you just simply reverse it. You start challenging people in what the gospel is, and we exist as a convention of churches for the propagation of the gospel, not for the propagation of progressive cultural trends, CRT, intersectionality, and all of this progressive wokeism that is taking over the entire country. That is not the purpose and function of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, that's well said. I I really agree with you on that, and I think that's extremely important. Here's another question that I hear from a lot of conservatives in the SBC. They've been saying this for quite a while, but now that Russell Moore has gone over to Christianity Today, where he probably will find a better home, is there a need, a continuing need, do you think, for the ERLC? Because a lot of people have expressed concerns about funding it, and has it really passed its usefulness? What's your position on that? My, My position on that is quite simple. I believe that Southern Baptists need to do a very thorough study on whether the ERLC, in its current form, is the most efficient and effective means to address the ethics and religious liberty 
concerns for Southern Baptists. We give to the ERLC around three and a quarter million dollars a year. They raise about another million or so from other sources, conference fees and things of that nature. But Southern Baptists spend three and a quarter million dollars a year on the ERLC. And I personally believe that we could do an awful lot of lobbying work as well as uh, uh, some of the other work that the ERLC has been doing or in some cases not doing. I think we can get more bang for our buck with a whole lot less divisiveness uh, that we see coming out of the ERLC right now. Yeah, that sounds good. Do you think when you go back to the memory of the conservative resurgence in the late 70s, and that was really a battle over the inerrancy of Scripture, and a lot of conservatives now are saying, no, it's really now about the sufficiency of Scripture, something that you mentioned earlier. Is that going to be a focus if you are elected president, that if we say we believe God's word, we better live it and we better stand for it and stand on it and not try to be duplicitous about it? Absolutely. I have said in my own preaching ministry for years, uh, even before some of these more recent trends, that an inerrant Bible is of no practical use if it is not also authoritative and sufficient. That is, you could theoretically get an inerrant dictionary if it went through enough publishers and editors to make sure all of the uh, phonetic spellings and definitions were all correct. You could get a dictionary that doesn't have mistakes in it, but it's not to be authoritative and sufficient over our lives. An inerrant Bible that is not also God's authority for us and all that we need, not not to know how to make cakes or change the oil in our truck, but sufficient for everything that we need related to uh, godliness and holiness. If uh, if the Bible is not also authoritative and sufficient, then uh, then its inerrancy is of no practical use to us. Absolutely. I know we don't have a lot of time left, Mike, but what do you think is the way forward on the sexual abuse issue, which a lot of people are concerned about, not just people on the left who like to use it as a battering ram, but people who are also conservatives, very concerned about the sexual abuse issue. What do you have on tap to tackle that issue? Well, for starters, I would have to just point out that I myself am a victim of sexual abuse. I don't identify in victim status, but it's a fact that happened to me when I was a child, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason that it's so outrageous to me, uh, these false accusations that I'm unconcerned or uncommitted on this issue. One of the things that Southern Baptists need to focus more on is to come alongside our churches and resource them, help equip and train them to do what only the local church can do. Janet, the Southern Baptist Convention only exists two days a year. So there's only so much with 47,000 local churches, literally from from coast to coast, all across the country. There's only so much that an organization that only exists two days a year can do to help uh, resource on this issue. I think that we need to focus on training and resourcing and Where there are verified cases that sex abuse has been mishandled or victims have been further abused or mistreated in some way, then I believe such churches have forfeited their right. Should they not repent and correct those errors, they forfeited their right to be a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's actually what we've begun doing over the last two years through the newly created Credentials Committee. Well, that's good. Very important. And I'm very sorry for your own situation with being abused. It's just heartbreaking to think about it. But I think that that's an important angle here and something you've pointed out in your responses to these leaked uh, letter and email uh, attacks on 
on yourself by Russell Moore because you, you were a victim. You know exactly how it feels and exactly what needs to be done, it seems, to go forward uh, with, you know, real integrity on the issue of sexual abuse. It's going to be very interesting, Mike, to see what happens next week. I know a lot of people are praying for you and looking forward to seeing what the Lord will do during the gathering in Nashville. But I just want to reference people to your website, PastorMikeStone.com. You can find out more about Mike and his ministry. And Mike, just an honor to talk to you. God bless you. And thank you so much for being with us. Janet, the privilege has been mine. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, Mike. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. A recent poll is showing an alarming new drop in support for Israel among younger evangelicals. As the Times of Israel reported, a Barna Group-administered poll commissioned by researchers at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke indicates a sharp drop in support for the Jewish state and raises concerns that Israel could lose a key ally going forward. In fact, nearly half of evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 29 now say they favor the establishment of a Palestinian state. What in the world is going on and why is this shift so significant? We're going to get some thoughts now from Jim Fletcher. He is director of Prophecy Matters and a columnist, speaker, and author on Bible prophecy issues. So good to have you with us, Jim. Welcome. Thank you, Jan. It's good to be with you. Tell us what your perspective is on this poll. I know you've been tracking this issue of younger evangelicals going further and further from support for Israel, but what do you think about this most recent finding that we've talked about here that you're seeing younger evangelicals in large measure uh, moving further and further to the left? Well, I really think it's just the outcome of, you know, the last 20 years of uh, softening up the evangelical world in, in various ways. I mean, it's not just one thing, but, uh, you know, the downturn in, in real Bible teaching in churches uh, certainly uh, weighs heavy. Um, you know, the social justice stuff that's come in, uh, and, and then the inroads that the Palestinian uh, community made within American churches in the last 10 years, I think, is also having an effect. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Let me give some of the numbers here so people can understand. They, they, I guess, went to 700 evangelical Christians between the ages of 18 and 29. They were asked where they placed their support in the recent Israeli-Palestinian dispute, quote-unquote. And just 33.6% said they stand with Israel. 24.3% said they stand with the Palestinians. And another 42% said with neither side. But the funny thing is, you can look at that and say, well, there was more support for Israel. But three years ago... Ago, Jim, 69% of young evangelicals sided with Israel. Only 5.6% said they sided with the Palestinians. Do you think that this is perhaps more of a knee-jerk reaction? I mean, that's such a big difference between those numbers in just three years. That's just incredible to me. And do they not know that Israel was attacked by Hamas? I, I'm not really sure if they even know what's going on over there. Well, that your last statement is exactly correct. I'm certain they don't know. Uh, if you look at the, you know, every once in a while you'll see the man on the street interview they do, 
uh, with these these demographics, and, and they don't they don't really know what's going on. Um, I don't think they understand at all who Hamas is or, or that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I, I think this is just an acceleration of what uh, was kind of an easy prediction a few years ago. In fact, I remember it was 10 years ago that some of the leadership with national, uh, uh, or excuse me, uh, Christians United for Israel, uh, you know, were saying if something isn't done about this problem within 10 years, it's, you know, it's going to be really dire. And so here we are. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, you hope it would change. You, you, you know, you try to do some things that, that would, would turn it around, but, but it was pretty clear that we were going to end up in this place. And, and as you, you alluded to, I think that, uh, the next few years we'll see, uh, you know, it'll flip really to the other side. Oh, boy. Well, how much of this do you think could be a theology shift? Because uh, no doubt there are people who call themselves evangelicals who are just more leftist politically or influenced by leftists. And so they're just making a political kind of statement to a poll like this. But what about the theology? I know you and I have talked about some of these groups that are influential within evangelicalism, turning younger evangelicals more against Israel. What's going on theologically? Well, it's it's sort of a, a smorgasbord. I mean, you know, you've got left-wing progressives like Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, Shane Claiborne, uh, Brian McLaren that have been infiltrating for a long time. So you have that going on. But then you also have, for example, within the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, there's there's a lot of reform influence. And, and that has really turned the tide against Israel, in, in my opinion. Yeah in that denomination. So it's, it's several different, uh, uh, groups coming together all with, uh, the, the same, the same end goal though is, is center left perspective theologically. Right. Now, when you talk about the reformed influence in the Southern Baptist convention and clearly the gospel coalition and, you know, together for the gospel, some of these other parachurch organizations that have been so influential, explain for people what the tie is between the reformed influence and the waning support for Israel, because there is a theological reason, but I'm not sure everybody would totally understand what that is. Well, you know, it, it, it comes from, uh, uh, let's say the last hundred years or so, you know, a lot of the uh, the scholarship in the seminaries, um, you know, was turned more this way. Like, for example, they would be they would be solid on something like, you know, the doctrine of creation, the the Genesis accounts. But but there were certain Presbyterian scholars who began to have influence in, you know, this this whole subject of Israel. And then, then we got the question of who is the true Israel and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, so I, I think a lot of it comes from that uh, kind of a mainline, uh, even conservative faction that, that got Israel really wrong. And, and so now it took a long time, but that's now filtered down to the straight evangelical denominations. Right now, are you talking about strict replacement theology or more the eschatology of amillennialism? What is what is the theological point on which this all turns? You know, I think a lot of it is replacement theology. I mean, the you know, eschatology um, they have they have been able to attack 
uh, Bible prophecy um, and Israel simultaneously. But, uh, um, you know, the eschatology is, is kind of one thing, but uh, um, th- this comes down to the fact that, and, and I'm, what I'm about to say is based on 25 years of hundreds of conversations with, you know, leadership, uh, seminary professors, and, and then just rank and file. I think there are too many evangelicals, especially in leadership, that simply do not like Jews. Mm. They they don't like Israel as a sovereign, powerful country, but uh, but they they it, it's if I can say it this way, it's a Jewish problem. Really, and and so that informs their theology. And so, for example, um, you know they don't like the promises uh, to to Israel to the restored Israel. And so they transfer that in a, in a spiritual sense to the church. Um, and so that's where you get the replacement theology. And I do, again, I think a lot of uh, evangelical denominational leadership today is in that place. Um, the, the, the prior generations that were really strong for Israel, they're gone now. Mm-hmm. And they've been replaced by, you know, 40-something uh, people now who uh, they, they just don't like the idea of national restored Israel. Wow. Well, I know that is a strong statement for you to say, but I mean, you can't deny that there has been a rise in anti-Semitism. I don't know if you're referencing actual anti-Semitism, blatant anti-Semitism or or more of a, you know, kind of a, well, I'm I'm not really up on uh, the national Israel thing and people complaining. Well, you know, the Palestinians have been hurt and this sort of thing. I, I also wonder how much of it truly is being uninformed, like we were talking before, because when you try to get into some of these issues with some of these younger evangelicals, it's a pretty simplistic mindset that they have. It's as if they haven't really read the Bible to see what it says about Israel. You're exactly correct. So with the rank and file, the, the millennials as a group, that is absolutely the case. It's simply not having information or the correct information. But again, at the leadership level, I just see it a little more sinister. I think that they do know what the issues are, and they've chosen sides, and it's not on the side of Israel. Well, that's a real problem, and I want to get into this more. Jim Fletcher is my guest from Prophecy Matters. We're talking about this poll showing an alarming new drop in support for Israel among younger evangelicals. When we come back, I want to get into some of the information about some of the groups that are driving this from within. You might be surprised to hear about some of these people. We'll come back right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options 
options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. When we look at this recent poll showing support for Israel among U.S. evangelical Christians of the younger generation is dropping sharply, you have to be concerned. It's not just a potential problem politically, but it's a definite problem theologically when you look at what the Word of God has to say about Israel. Jim Fletcher is with us, Director of Prophecy Matters. Jim, as I mentioned before, I know you and I have talked about some of the groups and people who are influencing this turn in theology, but one of the groups is this Telos group, and this was outed a number of years ago by CAMERA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, as being Soros-funded. Now, this is very interesting because when they're trying to say we want justice and peace for all, what they have found is that the Telos group really is promoting an anti-Zionist narrative. That's what they've said. Is it, do you see that group as being a real influencer of the younger generations and intentionally so? Uh, yes, on both counts. I, I do. They, they, uh, they've made real inroads. Um, Eight ten years ago, they they really started to accelerate their work in this area, you know, cleverly describing themselves as pro-Palestine, pro-Israel, pro-peace. They're really their their talking points are really the PLO. Um, you know, they they will uh, uh, they'll talk about uh, you know occupation and things like that. Um, they don't really call out Hamas and, and those kind of groups. Now, the, the leadership of Telos, you know, Todd Dethridge was, uh, I believe, Southern Baptist. He worked in the Bush administration, George W. And, and so they really kind of tout his mainstream evangelical views. But at the end of the day, the, the policies he promotes are center left. And they're very sophisticated and good at how they communicate with uh with Christian millennials, and, and unfortunately, yeah, I've had a lot of influence. Yeah, what have you seen? I know you've been to Israel several times, and, and you've seen kind of the effects on the ground, but how does Israel react to this? Because I know for a lot of Israelis, they've been used to Christians in the United States in particular really supporting them. Are they beginning to feel this pushback and, and the swing? They are, 
you know, I think that they have not uh, explored this uh, enough. I, I, you know, I, and, and I love them, of course, but, uh, and, and they have a lot of irons in the fire, obviously. They've got a lot of enemies from a lot of different directions. This one is one that is sort of under the radar, and I don't, I don't think the resources have been committed to combat this as it should have. Now, yes, the, the Israeli leadership is, is largely aware of what's going on, um, how to answer it is is another question. Yeah, that's right. So, Jim, if you're just giving a short synopsis for a younger evangelical who might be swayed by the narrative of the Telos group or Christ at the checkpoint, what would you say about why evangelical Christians should support Israel? Not just practically speaking, because it's the only democracy in the Middle East, but also theologically. What would be kind of a brief synopsis that you would begin with to try to make that case? Well, the theological point is the most important, um, and and I would say that an individual should look at Scripture, look at the Word itself. You know, if if you can set aside outside influences, set aside what you've been you've been told about Palestinians, just read the Word. What does it say? You know, we don't have any trouble accepting. Uh, John three sixteen or, or or you know a verse like that, and yet other verses though, primarily in the Old Testament that relate to a, a future restored Israel, which we see happening in front of our eyes, that sort of thing, that somehow gets spiritualized, and so I would say, read the whole of Scripture the way you read the the classic New Testament verses that I think we all can agree on and understand that it's all the Word of God. And the, and the really important point is, it's crystal clear what is being said. You know, there's there's been a lot of propaganda that, you know, the Bible is hard to understand, and we don't know what this means. Now, certainly there are things that, that take further study. But I think on the whole, the Bible is clear. And on the, on the issue of the history and destiny of the Jewish people in Israel, it's crystal clear. Yeah. And so, again, I would say to the individual, read the word for yourself and see what you come away with. Well, you should. I mean, that is the most important thing to go back to the Bible and read it for yourself without all of these influences, you know, influ- you know, kind of making your reading of the Bible different than it would be otherwise. I mean, you think about Genesis 12, Jim, where it says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the promise is given to Abraham when you spiritualize Israel. That's a huge problem. And going back to the Reformed influence, one of the things that I've noticed is the, the problem of spiritualizing extends beyond Israel. I mean, when you have people uh, going back and supporting theistic evolution and, oh, well, we can kind of spiritualize Genesis or saying in Revelation, we can kind of spiritualize Revelation. What would prevent you from spiritualizing everything if you just read it and you didn't want to accept it? Oh, that you, you made a perfect point. And in fact, that's exactly the, the issue because... The, the things that you mentioned, at some point, logically, you will come to a place where you'll need to spiritualize the resurrection of Christ. Wow. And, and, and other things. And believe me, in my conversations with, with Christian millennials in the last several years, they understand that. And that's how they arrive at a lot of their, their uh, things. I mean, if, if Genesis 1 through 11 is not what it 
it appears to be, and you can spiritualize it into something else, you can spiritualize the rest of Scripture. Yeah. And that's where a lot of them are at. Yeah, you're right. So what passages would you suggest people read to reclaim what the Bible really says about the promises of Israel and God's uh, purposes for Israel in the future? Where would you send people? Oh, I would read uh, the last two or three chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. I would read Ezekiel 36, 37, uh, Jeremiah 30. Um, I'd read the last four chapters of the book of Zechariah to start. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So when we are looking at the practical outgrowth of where we're seeing the trends in American evangelicalism, Jim, what is the potential effect? Why does it matter? I mean, for example, when we had President Trump in office, he was as pro-Israel as it gets and moved the embassy and did all, all kinds of things, the Abraham Accords and so forth. If you don't have evangelicals getting behind Israel, what happens to the pro-Israel movement in the United States? Well, I, I think at some point it, it you know, it's, it's withers away. Um, uh, I hope I never, I hope I don't live to see that day. Um Interestingly enough, though, in in my reading of Scripture, at the the time of the very end, Israel does find herself alone. And and so that's interesting to to see the the movement away from Israel. Um, But but to answer your question, um, you know, it's going to get weaker and weaker as time goes on. And uh, that's that's a difficult thing to watch. Well, it is. And going back to what we discussed earlier, where you see the rise of anti-Semitism, you see how Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, was treating Orthodox Jews during the shutdowns of COVID-19. It's obvious that there's some real spiritual warfare taking place. And and this is all, I mean, in the final analysis, Jim, we want to proclaim Jesus Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel. You know, Christianity is Jewish. I think that was Edith Schaefer's uh, book that she wrote years ago. This is important because if you are looking, I would think, at, at Israel as some kind of enemy and Palestine as some kind of wonderful entity, then you say, well, what does that to do to evangelism also? Well, yeah. And, and when you raise that point, it, it actually reminded me of something I mean, if you look at what's going on and then you read history, you see that America, uh, in, in terms of Israel and the Jewish people, we're running parallel to Germany from about mid-19th century to mid-20th century. Wow. That lead up to Hitler was a watering down of the gospel in the churches, a watering down of teaching the Old Testament, and we know where that led. Oh, yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah, that, that you're not just emphasizing the rise of anti-Semitism under Hitler, but also the weakening of the church. That's another reason. I, I keep getting more and more reasons, Jim, to be concerned about the weakening of the church. And you should be concerned about the weakening of the church for various reasons. But that's another one. And I, I just really appreciate what you do and the message that you put out there that we do need to continue to support Israel as evangelicals. No nation is perfect, but we certainly know what the pages of Scripture say about God's promise promises to Israel and they remain true. People need to go back and read and study their Bibles. Jim Fletcher, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your faithfulness and your great biblical teaching. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks, Janet, very much. Yeah, you bet. Take care. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for another broadcast of Janet Mefford today. We appreciate you listening so much and hope you'll tune in next time. God bless.